Well, good morning. It's, um, you know, it's great to be up here sharing the Word of God this morning. It is quite different coming into the building like this, isn't it? And um, we have all this lighting behind us. And by the way, there's probably a couple thousand different color combinations they can put up there. And blue is supposed to be calming. So that means um, you guys go to sleep. Red means you start throwing tomatoes. Um, stick with the blue. Uh, but anyway, it's, um, it's exciting. Um, just as a reminder, this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we're going to have an open house, and we'll be able to open up the building so you can walk around. We're going to do worship at 7, from about 7 to 7.30, and then at 7.30, you can go wherever you like, downstairs, upstairs. Uh, the Woodside Room will not be finished yet. Um, they're coming in Thursday and Friday to work on that, um, to do a lot in there, especially with the audiovisual and projection, and um, we have... The first two kids that walked into the Woodside room, though, saw the one wall we had, and I knew it was coming. The first thing they said was, cool, they built a rock climbing wall. <laughs> it's not a rock climbing wall. If you hang on those little things on the walls, they will come out. Uh, we're keeping the door locked, and it's actually not because of your kids. It's we're afraid what Austin's going to do if he gets in there. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, over the... Um, last number of weeks, uh, we've been preaching through a series, not last Sunday, but prior to this, uh, a series on our statement of faith, on the doctrine of the church. And we will be going back to that. So far, we covered the Bible. Um, and what we decided to do is we're going to pick that up again in September when the school year is over. And we'll continue our doctrine series. So throughout the um, summer, we're going to kick off a new series on the book of First Timothy. And it fits in pretty well because uh, doctrine is a central issue in the book of First Timothy. And what happened was we have um, the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy, a young pastor. And Timothy was in the city of Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul was um, somewhere else at the time. And he wrote this letter of First Timothy to Timothy to encourage him in the ministry there that was taking place in the city of Ephesus. And doctrine here was a key issue because what was happening was that there in the city of Ephesus, there were false teachers, there were doctrinal disagreements, and there was conflict that were just raging throughout the church of Ephesus. Now, it's a shame because this was a really young church. It's a shame when that happens in any church. But in the church in Ephesus, it had just been planted probably less than 20 years before and the Apostle Paul spent quite a bit of time himself in Ephesus. Uh, they believe he probably actually lived there for about three years, got to know the church rather well. And um, here we have this church that false teachers were coming in, and they were teaching a doctrine that was counter to the true gospel message of Jesus Christ. And what we get to look at here is how Paul approached it, but what advice did he give to Timothy? as Timothy was there to pastor to that church. One of the things you look at, too, I think it's a shame, but it's true, that some of the most painful conflict happens within the church. And I think you can understand that because um, probably when conflict happens in the home, that is like the worst conflict that we can go through. And what are we as a church family? We're a family. And when conflict happens within the church, it tends to be very hurtful to a lot of people. And here we have this young church in Ephesus that was in a situation of crisis. 
And as we look at this letter that Paul wrote, what we see was that Paul was responding to the crisis, and what he did was he sent young Timothy over to Ephesus. Paul wasn't able to go himself, so he sent Timothy and said, Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus, and here's what I want you to do. And I'm sure he gave Timothy verbal instructions, but Timothy, when he arrived in Ephesus, and Timothy saw the conflict that was taking place in the church, Timothy's first reaction was to leave. We see hints of that in Scripture. We see extra-biblical sources that tell us Timothy wanted to get out of there. I mean, can we really blame him? Painful, conflict is painful. And here we have this young pastor, Timothy, who probably hasn't had a lot of pastoral experience showing up in Ephesus with all of this taking place. And Timothy was ready to move on. But what Paul was saying to Timothy was, Timothy, no, you need to stay there. I need you to address these false teachers that are teaching a gospel other than the message of Jesus Christ, and I need you to lead the church in a way that's healthy. And as we go through the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to see what some of that health looked like. Now, this was not a surprise to Paul, though, because Paul had spent, I mentioned, about three years in Ephesus. And I'm going to read, we're going to start today by reading in Acts chapter 20, we're not going to hand out the Bibles just yet because I want to wait till we get to um, 1 Timothy. I put Acts chapter 20 up on the screen, and you can see it on there. But what I'd like to do is read verses 25 to 30. Now, before I do this, let me set the stage. What happened was Paul was spending all this time in Ephesus. He was about to leave the city, move on to somewhere else. The elders were gathered together, and Paul was speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. Pick up in verse 25 in Acts chapter 20, and it says, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, now remember he's talking to the elders of the church, and now he's telling them, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this passage was written in the book of Acts well before 1 Timothy. So here was Paul. He was prophesying. He was telling the elders that down the road, there are going to be false teachers rising up in your church, and they're going to come from within the elders themselves. So Paul had seen this one coming. It wasn't a surprise to him. So what I want to do is we're going to pray here, pray now. And after I pray, we're going to get into the book of 1 Timothy. But you understand what's taking place. Here was this young church in Ephesus. Paul had spent those years before there. He predicted that false teachers would one day come into the church. Now those false teachers have come into the church of Ephesus from the elders themselves. And the apostle Paul sent young Timothy in to help address the problem in the church of Ephesus. And what we're going to see, there's a lot of parallels that we can learn from as we look at God's church here in Yardley in 2017 
that we can learn from this book of 1 Timothy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together as a church family, that we can open your word together, that we can see what was taking place 2,000 years ago. And Lord, that we will recognize that it's not that different from today. And as we read through Paul's letter to Timothy, Lord, help us to see ourselves in this book. Help us to recognize our own shortcomings. Help us to heed the warnings of Scripture that apply to us today every bit as much as they did 2,000 years ago. And Father, help us to be diligent within our own hearts, to guard ourselves from, fal for, from false teaching. Help us to cling to your word. Help us to grow in your word. And Father, help us to be a church that's mature enough to know what is true and what is not. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this book of Timothy as a church family, that each one of us would be enlightened, that you would show us what you would want to reveal to us individually, and help us to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to ask the ushers if they would now pass out Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll get one to you. And again, like we say every Sunday, please keep it as a gift from us if you don't have a Bible at home. I want to start out by reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this verses 1 and 2, Paul's little introduction here um, in this letter that he wrote to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what we see here in the first two verses is that Paul is writing this little introduction to Timothy. Paul's, all of Paul's letters, if you go back and look at every letter Paul wrote, he always starts out with like an introductory couple verses. This one is a little bit different from what Paul normally comes in with. Paul usually gives greetings and he passes on a blessing and he talks about his prayers for the people. But in 1 Timothy, Paul actually jumps right into the topic at hand in verses 1 and 2. Because what we'll find here is in, in verse 1, Paul emphasizes a couple things. He emphasizes his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He passes that authority on to Timothy in this letter. And then he also magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's how Paul's opening greeting goes out. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he calls himself an apostle. That's a key word today. We hear apostle thrown around a lot. Um, there's things like the new apostolic era. There's apostolic churches using that today. We hear some churches will say, oh, this, you know, this is Apostle Bill. So what exactly is Paul saying here when he refers to himself as an apostle? I want to read a definition to you of what Paul was referring to as he called himself an apostle. Think of it this way. An apostle is part of a small definitive group who were chosen, called, and sent by Jesus Christ himself. They were witnesses of the risen Christ, so they saw Jesus Christ personally risen. They were endowed with a measure of the Holy Spirit, and their lives showed signs and wonders through the power of God. Now, as Paul calls himself an apostle, here he has these false teachers that were going about, and they were challenging the authority of the apostle Paul. Probably weren't even referring to him as an apostle. They were disrespecting Timothy, and they were challenging 
the doctrine of the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So now Paul here says, wait a minute, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, in, in Jesus' earthly life, he never interacted with the apostle Paul. But after Jesus' resurrection, if you remember what happened when Paul was on the road to Emmaus, who appeared to Paul at that time? Saul. Jesus Christ himself. So here we have Paul has this one-on-one -on -one personal encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And what does Paul do? The, the Greek word, well, we get the word from apostle, means one who is sent. Jesus Christ commissions Paul personally for the ministry that he's going to carry out, and he sends Paul out to do that ministry. So here's Paul saying to these false teachers through this letter to Timothy, because remember, this letter would have been read to the church. Paul is saying, wait a minute, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and indirectly he's saying, and you false teachers, I'm an apostle, you're not. Paul was addressing them head on. And he's saying that the authority by which I speak is coming through Jesus Christ himself. And then he's saying also, and my authority is being passed on to Timothy as my representative since I can't be there myself. And then he magnifies Jesus Christ. And what does he call? He says, according to the commandments of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, that title Christ is going to tell the false teachers just unashamedly who Jesus is, and he calls Jesus Christ our hope. So Paul's tackling this confrontation directly, just even in the opening verse. Now, in verse 2, Paul goes on and he refers to three words here, three wonderful words in the Christian faith. He, calls this, he talks about grace, mercy, and peace. Now, all three of those are key in Christian doctrine. But I'd like to just focus first on the word grace. See, the Ephesian Christians, they would have been familiar already with the book of Romans that Paul wrote, the book of Galatians. They would have been familiar with the Gospels because this book of 1 Timothy was written towards the very end of Paul's life. He probably died. He was executed a few years later after writing 1 Timothy. So the church by this time would have had all of those teachings on the doctrine of grace. And what is grace? It's an undeserved favor. And see, the doctrine of grace throughout the New Testament is teaching that our salvation has come to us as a free gift of grace from Jesus Christ, and it needs nothing else for salvation. See, that was the problem. What these false teachers were teaching, they were right within the church. They were the elders. They would have said, yeah, surely Jesus Christ needed to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And they would have added the word, but... But you also need to do this, this, and this. And what they were doing is they were taking the law, the Old Testament law, and they were actually distorting that. Just We'll get into it in verses 3 through 7. But they took the law and just added all of these fanciful things, crazy things to the law, and were telling the Ephesian Christians, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also need to do this, this, and this. And that's where Paul was coming in and saying, wait a minute, you are distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul was coming in and addressing that directly. Let's pick up in verses 3 through 7, and it shows us a little bit of what takes place in this um, distortion of Scripture. Um, guys, is there any way that this Scripture can be put up on the back wall as I do this? No? All right. Um, 
I just have to remember how many verses are on the screen there as I read it. Uh, Verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rathering than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. I love how Paul doesn't mince any words there, does he? Um, So here we have the problem that's taking place in Ephesus. This doctrine is being taught, and what Paul is telling Timothy, he says um, in verse 3, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, which is part of like in Greece and up through Turkey and stuff, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. Here is the young Paul, I mean the young Timothy. He's going into a church, and these elders, my guess is they probably were very persuasive because they were starting to lead the church away from the true gospel and following this false teaching that they were bringing into the church. They probably were very learned. They were probably rather intimidating. And here comes young Timothy. And what does Paul do? He says, Timothy, stay on because I have a reason for you. By this time, we have a lot of evidence. Timothy, was, he was on his way out. He probably had his resume out on churchstaffing.com. And he was looking for this nice, peaceful church on the Macedonian coast. And what does Paul say? He says, Timothy, no, you need to stay there. There are problems in the church, and these men are teaching false doctrine, and you need to address it. So Timothy, thankfully for the church, did stay on. And what we find is that Paul knew these elders personally. You see, Paul, I mentioned he lived there probably about three years in Ephesus. He probably got to know them pretty well at that time. I'm not going to read it, but in chapter 1, verse 20, um, Paul goes on to name two of them by name. Tell you, it's not a good way to get your name into the scriptures, is it? You know, that, how'd you like that if it was like, yeah, you know, we got George and Mary were teaching, you know, all this stuff, and your name is in scripture for the rest of eternity. But Paul names two of them. He's not holding anything back. And what we see is that when it comes to false teaching, God, through a writer like Paul, is taking this very seriously. And God is saying, this needs to be addressed. To the point where sometimes people are like, oh, you can't call someone out. Well, guess what? Scripture's showing us if somebody is distorting the true gospel, we as leaders of the church have a responsibility to let our church family know what is true and what is false. Otherwise, it grows like a cancer within the body of Christ. Now, Paul knew, I mentioned he knew these elders. And what does it go on? It says here in verse 4, well, first off, in verse 3 at the end, they're teaching strange doctrines. It says, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God. You see, these guys were coming in. I mentioned they were taking the Old Testament law and they were distorting it. Not only that, what they were doing was there were just a lot, if you go through the Old Testament, there are ge- genealogies in the Old Testament. 
And, and to the Jews, genealogy was very important. Who was descended from whom? Well, they, there's extra biblical sources that talk about what they knew was going on in the first century. And they were actually even taking things like saying that angels were coming in and they were reproducing with women and that was creating a line and that was what, this genealogy here. And they were getting all of these fanciful myths that were coming in and mixing in with Old Testament genealogies and they were starting to teach them in the church. So not only were they taking the true gospel and distorting it, but they were taking people's time and attention and minds away from the gospel, away from the word of God, away from what was truly important for their growth as disciples and getting them caught up in all of these trivialities. And that's a good warning for us today too. I, I think at times the evangelical church, we can get caught up in studying things and getting fascinated with things that are not directly the word of God. We hear people talking about things like numerology and numbers in the Bible. And if you got back to even so you can remember things like the Da Vinci Code and some of these other things. And they get all the most like these extra biblical things and people start studying it. And it pulls us away from what scripture teaches. Um, secondly, I, I think also we can also get a little bit misweighted on certain topics. You know, I don't want to knock the last century, but I think in some ways, um, if you go back into the 1900s, uh, like Bible prophecy conferences were the rage. And people were spending probably 90% of their Bible study time studying eschatology, the end times, and going to Bible conferences and looking into dates and times and all that kind of thing. You know, you know it's scripture. It's something we should be familiar with. We should look if we want to say, well, I, you know, I'm an amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist. It is important to know what those terms mean and to know what Scripture teaches. But at the same time, if we start taking like 90% of our focus and we become consumed with one area of Scripture to the exclusion of the body of Scripture, it's not healthy for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's something that we do need to be careful of as evangelical churches. I love in verse 5, look at verse 5 here, it says, talking about Bible study and the goal, but it says, but the goal of our instruction is what? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, one of the things that the Bible highlights continually is love. You know, God, here we say, God is what? God is love. You will know by my disciples by their love. And what we see here, the goal of our biblical instruction, this is Paul writing this, so the goal of Scripture is love from a pure heart. You see, I think that these false teachers that were in Ephesus, most likely they were condescending, they were judgmental, they were critical, they were probably heaping a lot of guilt onto people. And Paul was contrasting that with what the biblical model should produce. As we spend time in the Word of God, as we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should be producing love. It's the fruit of what God wants us to be producing in our lives. I want to give you um, really two takeaways from this section that I just read. The second one I give you, I'm going to make it my first point this morning. But that is this. One, anything that confuses the centrality of the gospel has to be stopped. Anything that comes between the gospel message of Jesus Christ and God and, and people, we need to take very seriously. 
The second thing, point takeaway I'd like, and this is my first point that I'd love you to re, just walk away with today. A heart transformed by the true gospel produces love. I'm put that one up on the screen as well. But that is so key. You see, I think what was happening, if you look at this church in Ephesus, there was disagreements, doctrinal disagreement, there was conflict, there were challenges, and Paul was saying, wait a minute, if you're a student of the Word of God, if you're studying God's Word, growing in God's Word, it should produce love. You know, at Riverstone Church, one of the things that we value is preaching through books of the Bible so people can get to know God's Word. It's so important that if you are going to understand, well, what is the truth, and you're going to be able to discern what is false teaching, you have to be spending time in the Word of God. It's the reason why we preach right out of the Bible from the pulpit and why downstairs, as we're up here, your children are downstairs, and they are studying God's Word. Um, we have a great curriculum that we're using for the children downstairs, and we need to be students of the Word so that we can know the truth, and discern false teaching. But being at a church on a Sunday morning, if that's the only time that you're spending in God's Word, it's not enough. You see, if you just come in and just listen to the one sermon a week, and you're not studying God's Word on your own, you're never going to get to know God's Word well enough to know what is true and to be able to discern what is false. That's why we have Bible studies throughout the week. It's why we're teaching throughout our kids' ministries, our youth ministries, teaching the Word of God. But I also want to give out a danger, and it's kind of like there's this fine line that we have to walk, and that is the fact that, you see, knowing God's Word should never be our final goal. You see, knowing God through His Word should be our goal. Sadly, there are a lot of people, think of liberal seminaries around this country, there are people teaching God's Word that have no faith in Jesus Christ. They could run circles around us with Scripture. But you see that one of the things they'll say is the, well, sometimes the longest distance in the world is from here to here. You see, they might know God's Word, but they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they've never allowed His Word to transform their heart. It's sad, isn't it? So what we have to be careful of is, and what if you ever notice, sometimes when people get so caught up that their goal becomes studying God's Word, they become impressed with how much they know. And they start teaching the deep things of God's Word. But what happens? We see some people, their hearts are judgmental, they're critical, they're angry. And you see, there's a catch-22 here. Our job is to get to know God through His Word and then what happens is the beautiful transformation of our hearts. And as our hearts get transformed by the gospel and the spirit of God, it produces fruit. And the first of those is love. You see, there's that balance. We need to be students of the word because you cannot know God apart from his word. God chose to reveal himself in two ways. Through the son, Jesus Christ, God himself came to the earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and when you saw Jesus Christ and you heard his words, it was God himself. That's the first way that God revealed himself. The second way is through his word. And we cannot get to know God apart from his word. So let's remember, though, but the goal of our Bible study, the goal of our teaching, are to produce hearts that are transformed 
by God himself, by the Spirit of God, producing love. It's a great catch. There's love in my life. It's a good measure for us. Well, I want to move on. And um, we see that these false teachers were distorting the law. Well, Paul doesn't go deep into theology in 1 Timothy, by the way. As we read through this, you're going to see this is not a deep theological book. Paul, I believe, was assuming that they already had his other books. They had Romans and Galatians that go deeper into things about the law and the gospel. But um, they call this one here, they call it a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. Um, there are three books in the Bible that make up the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. The reason they call them pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus were two young pastors in the early church. And Paul, who was the veteran, experienced, mature missionary apostle, was writing to these two young pastors and telling them what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. In all three of those letters, he's confronting doctrinal error as well. But he doesn't go deep into, well, this is what the truth is, because that's already in some of the other books. I believe Paul was saying, listen, the problem in Ephesus is not that they don't know what is true. They've wandered from it. So this is one of what they call one of the pastoral epistles. Here's a, here's a side note that I think will be help us to learn from as well. How about how much time Paul invested into the younger generation? You know one of the great things I love about our church right now? You know, you've got, um, you've got myself and Tom. won't tell you how old we are. But um, we may not be the wise, you know, apostle that Paul was. We might just be old and grizzled by now. But um, we've got these young pastors that have joined our staff. You know, John just led us in communion beautifully. I kind of picked on Austin a little bit earlier. You know, we have Jeremy just came back from Northern Ireland, and it's great. He's here he is today. And, you know, we have the staff here. But throughout our church, here's the question. Are we raising up? young leaders for the next generation, are we giving them opportunities to lead? You know, I'll tell you, we're, we're interviewing elders right now. One of the guys that we're interviewing is a young guy. Some people might say, well, he's not old enough. Well, I'll tell you, I, I became an elder at a very conservative church. I think I was the first elder at this church. I was 28 years old that didn't have white hair. And, um, you know, are we raising up the next generation of leaders, men and women, you know, our, our downstairs in the teaching, who's teaching our kids? Are we allowing young people to teach? Are they leading our youth ministries? Are they leading small groups? Are they serving as elders? Are they serving throughout the body? See, I, I read a book, and one of the quotes they used in this book was, as a church, if you want to be a healthy church, you better let your young eagles fly. If you don't, they're not going to be at your church for very long. So we as the older generation, hopefully mature, need to be constantly investing into the leaders of the future who should be leading today as well, right within our church family. I think it's great. Well, anyway, let me pick up, and I want to read verses 8 through 11. Picking up in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." 
Now, if you remember, verse 7, I, I joked about Paul doesn't mince words. Remember, right before I read verses 8 through 11 in verse 7, Paul said this. He says, they do not understand either what they are saying or about the matters which they make confident assertions. Mark Twain, the great theologian that he was, he paraphrased that once. Here's Mark Twain's quote. All you need in this life is ignorance and confidence. Then success is sure. Now, think about that. All you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and you're going to succeed. You know what's sad? These false teachers, they were teaching ignorance, but they were really confident about it. And people were following them. You see, one of the warnings I want to give you, cults are teaching false teaching all the time. And they are so confident and persuasive in what they teach. You see, confidence and passion does not make something true. We need to be so certain of what God's Word teaches because confidence in untrue things does not make it right. And sadly, you know, probably when I read this, and you're talking about they, they were confident and ignorant, and they were very confident, you're probably sitting there thinking, man, he knows one of my relatives. Um, sadly, I've seen it in churches. People that are confident and teaching falsehood. You know, we do need to be careful because, well, we're still, you know, we're Riverstone Church now, but while we were Bible Fellowship Church, there were a number of times, even in the nine years I've been here, that we've had to, behind the scenes, address false teaching. It's not uncommon. We've had people that have left our church because we had to address what they were teaching. We've had to separate ourselves from some parachurch ministries because we felt that they were moving away from teaching what Scripture teaches. It's something that we really have to take seriously. I want to transition, though, to the next, next aspect. In verse 8, Paul brings in something in verse 8. Let me go back to that. Paul says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good. Now, we hear so many things, especially in Paul's teaching about the law, that would make it sound from other books of the Bible that the law is not necessarily all that good. And here we see Paul is saying, but the law is good. Now, I want to encourage us. I want to go back. Probably the easiest thing for me to do is I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, here's Paul wrote this. Here he's talking now about the law. And he says, therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law. So what he's saying is, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you die to the law. The law has no longer has any authority, jurisdiction over you. You've died to it. Why? Because you've been now given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you live by faith in Christ. Because on so that you might be joined to another, that is Jesus Christ himself. An interesting thing. If you make that transition, you died to the law. You trust Christ as your Savior. You're joined together with Christ. And what does the very end say? In order that we might bear fruit for God. Notice he doesn't say, come to faith in Jesus Christ and then go sit by yourself and just grow deeper in, in your relationship with God. No. He says, in order that you might bear fruit. In Galatians, what is the first fruit of the Spirit that's listed on the list? Love. 
love, joy, peace, patience, right? So here we have the goal of your life when you come to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior is not just so you can hold it all into yourself. It's so that you might bear fruit. The goal of biblical teaching was what? Love. What we see here is God wants us transformed on the inside. What we see is, I need to speed things up a little bit for our sake here today, but um, we need to understand what role the law plays in our lives. I'm going to give you the final point this morning. The law is your guide to the glory of the gospel. That is so critically important. Paul says here in 1 Timothy that the law is good. Well, why is the law good? Well, the law was given to you intending to be a map to point you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. The law was given to point you to the gospel. Think of it this way. Think of the law as a dirt-revealing mirror. As you look at the law and you realize, man, there's no way I can do this. Try it. Try it. Try being really good for the next five minutes. (laughs) You know, you can't do it. See, what we look at is when we see the law, we see in our inability to keep it. It's like a dirt-revealing mirror. The problem they had in Ephesus, these people thought they were already clean, and they weren't. How many people in our society today think they're already clean, but they're not? You see, when Paul says the law is good, think of it just of that, as a dirt-revealing mirror showing you your desperate need for a Savior so that you can trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And what's the result? It produces fruit in your life. It's a cycle. The law is good. The law shows us our inability to meet God's standards. It shows us the gospel. And then we become transformed because of it. Let's wrap up in the last two verses in 1 Timothy. Realizing the... I'm sorry, no, actually, you read this already. I want to go back to this. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person... Catch that. The law is not for the righteous, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. And then Paul goes on with this whole list. What I want you to remember is, why does Paul say that the law is not for the righteous? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his righteousness in you. You don't need the law. You don't need a dirt-revealing mirror because you've already been cleansed. And then Paul says, but... The law is for, and he talks about the lawless and, you know, the rebellious. And he goes through this whole list. I don't have time to do it this morning, but take a look at that list that Paul gives there and compare it to the Ten Commandments. These vices in this list parallel the main categories of the Ten Commandments. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, thankfully, Bob's not talking to me today. I've never committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't. Now, and not all of us can say that, but look at verse, 11, verse 10. Paul, he gets his catch-all. This is his safety net at the end of verse 10. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So Paul gives this long list of you know, murderers and all these type things. And then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Guess what? He just caught every one of us. That could be those who get angry at your spouse. Those who get angry at your children, those who disobey your parents, those who have lustful thoughts, those who are greedy, those who covet other things. Need I say any more? It covers all of us. You see, every single one of us desperately needs the true gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Paul is showing us here today. It's that, you know, the law is good for sinners to point them to the gospel. But we as believers in Jesus Christ need to appropriate the true gospel in our lives. And I want to end by saying this. As a church family, let's commit ourselves to being a church grounded on the truth of the word of God, being transformed by the gospel in our hearts so that what we're producing out of our hearts is love, so that the world around us, when they experience Riverstone Church, when they experience you, they're seeing the love of Jesus Christ because we are so transformed by the word of God as we preach it and study it faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us in your word, and I pray that we would all be faithful, Lord, to your word and to being transformed by it. Father, we thank you for your mighty work of your spirit. We thank you that, Lord, through your law, you've revealed our sinfulness. And Lord, I pray that each person here would trust Christ as Savior. And as we go forward today, help us to show the love of hearts that are being transformed by the Spirit of God. Amen.